Would you please remain standing now for the reading of our scripture this morning? Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Our kids can be dismissed down the hall. And as they are being dismissed, let me welcome you. We are glad that you are here to worship with us. And we are in the second week of a series that we're calling Wrecked. Augustine wrote this, that sin tends to make that which is cease to be. Sin is not merely human wickedness. It's not just immoral action. Sin is first and foremost a power. It is a parasitic force that takes the good things that God has made and eats away at them until they are no more. It takes what is, and it tends to make it cease to be. Somewhere around the 6th century, Christians began to put this power of sin into definitive categories, and they were doing the work of physicians. They were diagnosing this parasitic force that is killing us, and, and the result was a catalog of sin at work in us, seven broad areas where sin latches onto our souls, it twists our desire, and it points us towards all kinds of delights that are always hiding poison inside of them. And so you won't find this list in the Bible, but you will find scripture after scripture with, with, that deals with each one of these topics, pride, envy, sloth, greed, lust, anger, gluttony. We, we uh, checked off the list, anger, last week. And these are seven ways that we assault ourselves and those around us and the world as a whole. They have come to be known as the seven deadly sins. And the important note that we will emphasize every week is that they are deadly. If they gain a significant hold on our hearts, then all they do is dig further and further and deeper and deeper until all that once was beautiful is no more. And the deadly sins describe how we normally think, how we normally operate, what we normally want, how we normally behave. They are daily rhythms for us, but we understand that something is off. Things are not how they're supposed to be. And so Jesus comes and he offers antidotes to these things that we consume every day, a way that instead of taking what is and causing it to cease to be, taking what is and causing it to continue to be. And with the antidote Jesus gives, here's our, here's our hope as we go through these seven things, that we can wreck the sin in our lives before the sin in our lives wrecks us. And so this week, we look at envy. Check that off the list. Envy is the subtle deadly sin. You like that picture? Yeah. Some will say that in many ways, envy is the most important of the deadly sins to wrestle down because it actually leads to all of the others. Envy is the evil queen standing in front of a mirror, 
and asking this magic mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? And she needs the answer to be her, right? We know that. And when it's not, envy leads to deceit and it leads to trickery and it even leads to murder. But just the same, envy, if you know this story, is what will move Snow White to take a bite of the apple that the evil queen has poisoned. It's a magic apple, and one bite of this magic apple will make all of your dreams come true. And she takes the bait because she wants all of her dreams to come true. And I can't really say that without thinking vote for Pedro because if you vote for me, all your wildest dreams will come true, right? A vote for Pedro is my magic apple that will make all my dreams come true. But Snow White takes the bite and it leads to a sleep from which she will never recover without the help of a prince. And so each week, we're taking kind of the same path, what, what this thing is, what envy is, why it wrecks us, and how we can wreck it before it wrecks us. And so what is this thing called envy? As we will see with each of the seven deadly sins, envy actually begins with something good. We saw this about anger last week. Let's start in Exodus chapter 34, verse, uh, verse 13. God is giving instructions to his people as they go into the Holy Land and take the land that God has given them, but he, he has, he's going to drive some people out, the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the, all the ites, and he says this, when I drive them out, you shall tear down their altars, you shall cut down their pillars, break their Asherim, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. What do we learn? That God is envious for something. He's jealous for his people. And so envy, jealousy, begins actually from a good place. God himself is envy. Envy is a commitment to a relationship that says, this is something that I value. I want to keep this, and I want to strive to always have this in my life. And so envy gets stirred up in a good way when it moves us to maintain a relationship that is threatened or to restore a relationship that is broken. So the problem comes very quickly when we move from being envious for something to being envious of something. Sinful jealousy is not jealousy for someone, but of someone. It's looking out across the people in your life and seeing someone with something in their hand that is better than what you have in your hand, and you want whatever that thing is in their hand. And so in its very basic form, envy is this. It's wanting someone else's life. The psalmist in our sermon text looks out over the people who don't know God And he says, he looks at their lives, and he says, I saw their success, I saw their arrogance, I saw their prosperity, I saw these people who don't believe in God, and they don't have any troubles, they're all fat and happy, while I sit here, and I'm trying to follow God, I'm trying to submit to Him, and I'm getting pain and trouble and trial, one after the other, and what I want is their life. Can I trade my life for theirs? That's what the psalmist says. That's envy. He says, I was envious. Now, think for a moment about when you might be tempted yourself to bite into that magic wishing apple that makes all your dreams come true. 
When does envy hit you? Is it when you are riding in somebody else's new car? Is it when you're eating at somebody else's really nice house? Is it when you hear about where somebody went on vacation? Is it, about, is it learning that somebody you know is out of debt? Is it knowing that some, one of your friends made an investment that paid off? Is it watching that perfect family with seemingly no issues at all? Is it seeing someone with no talent hold the job that you are actually overqualified for? Is it scrolling through post after post of perfect airbrushed bodies with exactly the right wit and exactly the right insight for the situation and they have a gazillion followers and they are godless? Is it about admitting that somebody else is just flat out better than you? No matter how hard you try, they're just better. All of these are scenarios where envy can take root. And envy's three favorite words are this, why not me? We look out at all of those other people and we say, they have that, why not me? Why not me, God? And when you say that, you've taken a bite of the magic apple that promises all your dreams can come true. But envy has even a deeper level than that. That's the base layer. Envy is not just wanting somebody else's life. Envy goes one step further. It's more sinister. It's resenting others for the life they have. It's not just wanting their life. It's actually resenting them for the life that they've been given that we haven't been given. And so we are unhappy when people are happy. And we are weeping when somebody else is rejoicing. It works the other way too. We can be happy when somebody else is unhappy. And envy rejoices when it sees somebody else weeping who has the thing that we want. Has that ever happened to you? It's the evil queen learning for the first time, in fact, that she is not the fairest of them all. And there's a new contender in town. And the newbie, Snow White, has taken the crown. Snow White is the most beautiful, and the evil queen weeps because Snow White rejoices. And so she devises a plan. She poisons an apple. She tricks Snow White. And after the bite takes its toll and death and destruction take their course, the evil queen rejoices while everyone else weeps. And so envy is, not only do I want somebody else's life, but I want them to suffer because they have something that I don't have. Have you ever caught yourself rejoicing at somebody else's pain? Have you ever caught yourself saying, oh, I knew it all along. I've watched them. I, did, I, was, I, I, was, suspect, I was suspicious. Oh, they fall. I knew it. I knew it. Or have you ever wept at someone else's success? Oh, I knew they wouldn't deserve it. I knew they didn't deserve that. There's no way. That's envy talking. And the apple has a chunk missing. And so why is envy a deadly sin? The most notable instance of envy in the Bible is when this entire nation of Israel that God chooses to be his nation decide that they no longer want to follow God. 
Israel uh, envied the nations around them. They began to look at the nations around them, and, and they, they saw all of these nations around us have a human ruler. And so the Israelites had been told that God was their king. But God is not somebody you can see. Now we want a king that we can see. And God understands this complaint. He actually mourns. He says, they have rejected me as their king in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And it's probably one of the most important passages in the Old Testament because the remainder of the Old Testament is all about the downward spiral that happened as a result of this moment. The nation that God chose for himself did not want to be its own unique self anymore. It did not want to be a people that was led by God and called to bless all the world. They wanted to be someone else. And to be that someone else, they needed a human ruler so that they could be like all of the other nations. Guess what they were asking for? We know. They were asking for a human being who would tax them heavily. They were asking for a human being who would call all of their sons to fight his wars for him. They were calling for a human being to rule who would serve his own interests rather than theirs. That's the way it goes. And in attempting to be somebody else, Israel is ripped into two nations almost immediately. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and this one nation becomes two, and over time, each one of those halves of the kingdom are conquered by foreign forces. They come in, and they carry people away from their homeland in chains. That's what happened. That was the downward spiral. And the envy of the Israelites led them to reject their identity, and when they no longer knew who they were, the nation was split, the split nations were conquered, and people were left, led off to foreign lands. Whenever the Bible talks about people getting moved into foreign lands, whether it's forced or chosen, it always uses one word. The word is exile. Exile. And in that world, in the Old Testament, exile was the ultimate punishment. It was a fate worse than death. It was the removal from one's family, one's culture, one's homeland. It meant a hard, lonely life separated from all that a person knew and loved. Exile took everything that a person had, and exile was separation from all that was good in your life. And each time when the Bible describes exile... Envy is always the first thing that happens. Envy always leads to exile. You can see it in the garden. Adam and Eve, Eve wanted status that God had reserved for himself, knowledge of good and evil. And so Eve and Adam violate God's word to get it. And so God removed them from the Garden of Eden and their envy led to exile. You can see it in their children, Cain and Abel. Cain wanted to be esteemed like his brother Abel. He envied Abel's status. But instead of doing the things that would gain that kind of status for himself, he short-circuited everything, and he killed his brother. And when God saw that, he removed him from the land, said, Cain, you will be a restless wanderer for the rest of your life. Envy led to murder, and murder leads to exile. We can see it in the story of Jacob. Jacob envied the blessing of his father and intended to give his older brother Esau 
um, that he was going to get the blessing. And so Jacob steps in and deceives his father and steals the birthright of Esau and the blessing. And because of that theft, Jacob has to leave his home and his family. He has to go off to a foreign land. His envy led to betrayal, and his betrayal leads, leads to exile, even the devil himself. We can read that. He envied God's power. He envied God's glory. He leads a rebellion in heaven, but he fails, and he's cast out. Envy led to rebellion, and rebellion leads to exile. The pattern is always the same. In each case, exile is the natural outcome of envy because envy separates us from who we were made to be and the life we were made to enjoy. Jeff Cook says this, envy is the sin that insists that we transform into something we are not. And when I am separated from myself, I become truly lost. Envy lies to us, tells us that we're nothing and that everyone else is something, so we have to become something else to be something so that we're not nothing. It pushes us to live a life and create a life that we were never intended to live. And in that process, we actually lose who we are. In the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a scene where Lucy, uh, the youngest of the children, comes across a book called the Book of Incantations. And this book mysteriously promises to provide an infallible spell that will make you the beauty that you've always wanted to be. Now, Lucy had faith in Aslan. Aslan represents Christ in the Chronicles of Narnia, if you've ever read that story. And Lucy has immense faith in Aslan, but she's always struggled with a deep wound. She feels inferior and jealous of her beautiful older sister, Susan. And she's tempted by this book to become more beautiful. And so Lucy speaks forth the spell in the book. And suddenly a mirror appears on the page right across from the spell. And Lucy looks into the mirror and she realized that, realizes that her face has transformed into the face of her sister. And so she decides to close the book and hide it. Later, Lucy is tempted again. And she's she recites more of the spell, make me she whom I'd agree holds more beauty than me. Beautiful sister, as always. Peter! 
Excuse me, miss. Can I get a photo? Your mother's going to love this. All her children in one picture. Smile. Hang on, where am I? I mean, where's Lucy? Lucy? Who's Lucy? Susan, what's wrong? Come on now, miss. Nice big smile. Edmund, I'm not sure about all this. I think we want to go back. Go back where? To Narnia. Uh, there's Narnia. What's going on? Stop this! Lucy. Aslan? What have you done, child? I don't know. That was awful. But you chose it, Lucy. I didn't mean to choose all of that. I just wanted to be beautiful like Susan. That's all. You wished yourself away, and with it much more. Your brothers and sister wouldn't know Narnia without you, Lucy. You discovered it first, remember? I'm so sorry. You doubt your value. Don't run from who you are. In our desire to put on the skin of another, we disappear. Envy is this sin that insists that we transform into something that we're not. And when I'm separated from myself, that's when I'm truly lost. So how do we wreck this deadly, deadly sin that causes us to cease to be? before it wrecks us. Three things that I want to give you today. First, look in, look in. And this week is, uh, this uh, point is this week's installment of check yourself before you wreck yourself. Yeah, thank you very much. There is, look in. There is a self-diagnostic test present in envy. It actually tells us who we are. We can say it this way. Learn what you envy and you'll know who you are. God calls every one of us to live before him, to make him the center of our lives. We don't like that too well. We don't want to be, we don't want anyone to be superior to us. And so, so often we choose to live before other things. We make approval the center or money or career or achievement or popularity. We rebuild our identity on all of these other things instead of God. And so if we want to understand what we look to as our justification for existence. We just have to ask, what do I envy? Let me give you an example of that. Maybe you go to school and you get a music degree because you love music. You want to play music the rest of your life. But all of your classmates who go to school with you go on to produce more music than you, better music than you, they make more money than you, they have greater connections than you, they have more acclaim than you do, they're more famous. How do you feel about that? The answer depends upon your relationship to God. If you live as with God in the center before God as he calls you to live, if he's the center, then music is great, right? But it's only an extension of the God who is at the center of your life. And so you can look out at all of those classmates and you can admire them. You can cheer for people that are doing better, 
better music than you. Your, your worth doesn't come from music, and so you're not robbed of any worth when you clap and congratulate people for being a better musician than the one you are or always wanted to be. On the other hand, if you're living before music, if music is the center of your life, if music is the way that you know you're worth something, then it will be very difficult for you to admire those classmates that you know, right? You know, and they're doing music better than you. I mean, you will resent them. They never understood theory. They didn't even pass theory. And they're playing with Yo-Yo Ma? How is that possible? If you want to know who you really are, where your identity really lies, follow your envy. You will envy the people who have the thing that you feel you need to justify your existence. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Imagine you have one. What's the question you ask? Who's the most beautiful? Who's the richest? Who's the most successful? Who's the most loved? Who has the best family? What is the question you would ask? And if it's not God who convinces you that you are significant, if it takes a magic mirror, then you'll be drained by envy all of your life. And so look in. There's a test. Study what you are envious of. Learn where your center is. And before God is the only center that leads to long-term joy. Here's number two. Look in. Look up. Look up. Here's what the psalmist said that we, that we read at the beginning of the sermon. He says, I was envious of all of these people who don't even believe in God until, and then verse 16 and 17 said this, when I thought how to understand it, it seemed like a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned therein. Proverbs 23, 17, and 18 has something very similar, same thought, let your, not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. And so the psalmist says, my problem was envy until I went into the sanctuary of the Lord. What does that mean? That means he went to worship. He found his answer for envy there. Same in the proverb. The proverb says, take your envy up into the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is not just thinking, but it's worship. And both of these writers are telling us, take intentional time to look up, to worship. Being in the fear of the Lord is not about being fearful. It's about washing yourself with awe and wonder before God's beauty. There are a lot of the deadly sins that we will cover that the answer comes in us thinking. Envy is not one of those. Envy needs an experience. Envy doesn't need study. Envy needs to open its mouth and praise the God who is true. And so these writers worshiped and then they perceived. Taking time to worship puts God squarely back in, uh, puts us squarely back in the reality that envy tries to hide from us. Envy says, I'm not enough, right? Worship reminds us that Jesus is enough on our behalf. We have no reason to strive for somebody else's life when Jesus has already done what is necessary to redeem the life that we have. 
And so we worship. And we give God his worth for making possible salvation through the cross. And get this, just, just another little thought. Here's who we worship. We worship a Savior who did not envy us. What? What are you talking about there? Think about this. We live horribly. We're sinners, right? And yet God does not forsake us. How did Jesus live? He lived exactly the opposite. He lived perfectly. And what, God, what did God do with Jesus? He forsook him. That's the gospel. Jesus paid for us what we know we owe to God. And in exchange, we get freedom and family. And he gets a cross. He gets death. But in all of that, he did not envy us. He never looked out and said, how come they get off to get off free while I sacrifice? I have to pay the penalty by hanging on a cross. He never said that. He didn't begrudge anything. He got the opposite of what he deserved, but he did not care. Instead, this is crucial, he delights in what we got. He delights in it. That's unenviousness. If envy is to look out and see the good in others and hate them for it, then the opposite of envy is to look out on others and see all their flaws and choose to love them for it. That's what Jesus did. And when we realize he did that for us and we fall down at his feet, our worship should erode away. Look in, look up. And then finally, look ahead. In these same passages, Psalm, the psalmist says, at the, the last line, until I discerned their end. And the Proverbs writer says this, surely there is a future hope to come. What are both doing? They are both looking ahead at what is waiting for them. And so one of the keys to, anger, uh, to envy is to take that envy that you're feeling and play it out into the future hope that is guaranteed to you as a believer. The death of Jesus means that he is unenviously committed to you in love. I'm not going to want any of their lives I'm going, so I can avoid the cross, I'm going to be content with my life, this is what Jesus says, even though it includes a cross. That's unenviousness. And that unenviousness led to his death, but it also led to his resurrection. And his resurrection means that we have a possibility of a new future. There's a new heaven coming. There's a new earth coming. To defeat envy, we have to see that future. A big part of envy is good. We started out that way, right? We envy because we love something. We, we have envy because there's something out there and it's good and we want it, but we can't quite reach it. Is there anything wrong with want, wanting a chiseled body? Is there anything wrong with wanting a healthy family relationship? No. We, we recognize when we have shortcomings in those areas and we want to correct them. That's healthy. But when we see others succeeding where we fail and then we get green with envy, we bite the apple and we let sin and resentment in. And so how do we avoid envy in the process of fixing our shortcomings? Here's the answer. 
We can live with the incompleteness of our lives in this world only when we see the absolute completeness in the next one. Tim Keller tells the story about J.R. Tolkien and his friend C.S. Lewis. They were really good friends, and they were both writers. And so they said, let's write fiction and of the kind that we want to see written. And so over the next couple decades, C.S. Lewis begins to just churn out these uh, books, one after another. There's uh, the Space Trilogy books and the Complete Chronicles of Narnia that we just saw a clip of. There's seven books in that series. There's screw tape letters. He churned all of these books out. And Tolkien, on the other hand, continually wrote over and over and over and rewrote and rewrote one book. He had one story, and he couldn't get it out. He envied Lewis, his friend, because he could write so well and so much. And Tolkien had this great story that he wanted to tell. He desperately wanted to tell it, but it never felt right. Every chapter, it seems, of The Lord of the Rings was written 10 times. He was never satisfied. It was never good enough. That's the lie of envy. And he actually got so frustrated at one point that he stopped working on it completely. And then one night everything changed when he had a dream. And he wrote this dream down into a story the minute that he woke up. And after that, he was okay and he finished The Lord of the Rings. And the story of his dream is called Leaf by Niggle. And it's about an artist named Niggle. And the town fathers come to this artist and they commissioned him to do a huge mural on the side of the town hall. And they put, put up this big canvas, and he works on it for weeks. He works on it for months. He works on it for years. And there's things in the story that pop up where he has to break away from his work, and he can't quite get it finished. It's always incomplete. But he had this idea in his head of what it should look like, of the tree that should be in this mural, a beautiful, huge tree that he was trying to paint. And after all of these years, with all the interruptions, all he has gotten done is basically one little leaf in a corner of the canvas. And the town fathers come to him and they say something, we, we paid you all this money? You give us a leaf? That looks terrible. It's just a leaf in the, in the corner of the canvas. And Niggle said, I'm trying, I'm trying. But he never realized his painting and then he dies. And after he dies, he finds himself in paradise. And he finds in paradise the tree that he had always tried to paint on the canvas. The story says this, before him stood the tree, his tree finished, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed and had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree and he slowly lifted his arms and opened them wide. It's a gift, he said. And what Tolkien realized in this dream is this, that there is a real tree. Someday, everybody is going to see it. And he realized, there's a story that I need to tell. There's a story that I have to tell. And of course, I will never get it out in this life in the way that it 
is perfect, right? In the way that I really want to. Of course it will never be what I envision it to be, but someday, someday, I will get it out just right. Someday in another life, it will get told and everyone will see the full story in the completeness of eternity. Now, as a Lord of the Rings fan, I'm sure we want to see the complete version because the real version is pretty good. Tolkien was a Christian and he believed in the resurrection. And the way that he was able to handle his own incompleteness in this life and his own envy of his friend that could write so well was by realizing that in the future, this is all going to be completed because of the resurrection. You and I, we have all been put to sleep. Envy has brought death. It has closed our eyes. And what the cross tells us is that there is a prince that really did come with the kiss of life to bring us back out of that sleep. Look in, look up, look ahead. Envy is swallowed up in the worship and the truth of God's gift of life through our prince, Jesus Christ. If envy is wanting somebody else's life and then even resenting them because you don't have that life, then to defeat envy, we need to continually go into the presence of the most unenvious God and worship Him. In His presence, while we're there in worship, we need to think about our future where envy is a thing of the past because in that future, in that day, we will lack nothing. And the reward for worshiping and thinking about your future is this, that you don't have to be anyone else at all. You just get to be you. Can I suggest this? If God really is the place where all of our wants and desires and needs are ultimately met, if salvation for every incomplete thing in your life really is found in Jesus, then to the extent that you do make him the center of everything you do, you won't want anyone else's life. Lord, teach us to be like Paul, who said, I've learned to be content no matter what my circumstance is. This kind of non-envy comes when we worship, so teach us to worship. This kind of non-envy comes when we remember the future you've stored up for us because of Jesus. Teach us to hope and erase envy from our lives. And it's in the name of the Prince, Jesus, that kisses us out of death that we pray. Everybody said, amen. I'd like you to stand. Do you know this God who is so anti-envy that he thought nothing of what he would lose by going to the cross and he thought everything of what you would gain by going there. Submit to him. Give him all today. Make him Lord. Maybe you've never done that. Please come in faith. Come in repentance. Come for baptism. And make him Lord of your life. As we worship today, as we think about that future, you come if you need to.